New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Social media and other communication tools have changed the world, mostly for the better. However, it is ever more difficult to know whom to trust and what to believe. Technology is certainly not solely to blame for today's fakery epidemic, but it has put it on steroids. The result is that we have entered what our guests describe as a post-truth era. How can we be more mindful of the role we play, sometimes unwittingly, in condoning and promoting fakery? How can we become more alert about how vulnerable we are to fall prey to fakeness? What are the behavioral, social psychology, and media studies that will help us spot fakeness and understand why it's so compelling? These and many other questions will be explored with our guest today, Shiv Singh. Shiv Singh advises Fortune 500 companies and startups on strategy, marketing, and how to succeed in the digital era as the founder of Savvy Matters. Prior to starting his consultancy, Shiv was a senior executive driving marketing, innovation, and digital strategies at Visa, Inc., and PepsiCo. He has previously advised Ford Motor Company, Chanel, Genetech, Citibank, and Verizon, and is a member of the board of directors at United Rentals, Inc., a Fortune 500 company. In 2016, Schiff was inducted into the American Advertising Hall of Achievement and has also been recognized by Adweek as a top 50 marketer. He's co-author with his wife, Rohini Luthra, of Savvy, navigating fake companies, fake leaders, and fake news in the post-trust era. Join us for the next hour as we explore our responsibility and how to navigate this era of fake news and groupthink with our guest, Shiv Singh. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Shiv, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. i just like to really start off the Oxford Dictionary named post-truth as its international word of the year in 2016. So can you describe what you mean by post-trust era? Sure. It's, it's been really interesting over the last decade, and it uh, really began with the financial crisis in 2009, 
where there was this breakdown in, in our confidence in both Wall Street as well as in Washington with the subprime mortgage, mortgages mess and that, that, that entire financial disaster, what people across America saw was that they were losing their homes, they lost a lot of money, there were a lot of economic and political scandals taking place. However, there was no one held accountable and no one being responsible for it. And out of that sort of political and economic and financial mess came the recognition that we can't depend on our business and our political leaders and even these large organizations the way we once did. That led to the Tea Party movement, that in many respects led to the rise of the Trump era. And with this rise of the Trump era, something else in a whole nother world was also going on, which was the rise of the social media platforms. And what happened in the social media platforms was all of us started to get more and more information driven by those algorithms that would just tell us things we wanted to hear versus what we should be hearing. So on the one hand, we were losing our trust in our political and our business leaders. And on the other hand, through these social media platforms, we were getting more and more information that was really information candy that played on our fears, that played on our weaknesses, that inflamed our emotions, that made us think more and more in the extreme. With that, we entered what we refer to as the post-truth era first, where knowing fact from fiction, uh, truth from lies, misinformation from information became very hard. But it also led to something else, which is we started to live more and more in our own echo chambers, in our own filter bubbles, where we would close our ears to anything that disagreed with us. We retreated to the familiar that... Uh, confirmed what we already believed in. When that started to happen, we stopped trusting the unknown. And the unknown became anyone or anything that had a different point of view. And that's where we say in the book that we moved from a post-truth era to a post-trust era, which is even more damaging and even more dangerous. Where it's not just that we can't tell the difference anymore between fact and fiction, but who we trust and how we place trust has broken down. And the, the techniques and the symbols and the way we would trust historically has fragmented and fallen apart. And that's the world we find ourselves in. Do you mention in the book the work of Morton Deutsch, I think it is, and he has a definition of trust. Do, do you recall what his definition is? Yes, so Morton Deutsch, and I, I, you know, I've, I've become a massive fan of his. He's considered the father of modern-day research on trust. And before he was around, no one really knew how to think or define trust. And he said trust is fundamentally the expectation that you will get back from someone what you expect and what you think you will get back. So it is about that value exchange. It is about having that shared value and that confidence that you will get back from the person what do you think you should get back? So it has a big reliability and a commitment piece to it. In this post-trust era, 
we're not getting back from other people or from technology or our leaders or our companies or the news what we would normally expect to get back. And that's where we have the breakdown. However, if if we have if we're in that media silo, let's say, that yes. where we we pick out our media and this is the media we, we're gonna trust because it agrees with our what you call innate bias. So then we tend to trust that media, whether it's giving us truth or not. Do you have a comment on that? So, so Justine, it's, it's, it's crazy. There's all kinds of research that shows that we as regular people, as consumers, feel that there's an incredible amount of fake news out there. But, and this goes exactly to your point, we believe each of us individually does not succumb to it that we know what to trust, we know how to tell the fake news apart from the real news, we know which media property to listen to, who to ignore. That's what the research says, how we behave. The truth, though, is we're clueless. And it's hard for me to say this because I am insulting my own readers or your listeners, but we can't tell fact from fiction anymore. And there's also a whole bunch of research that shows that when we're given, like, 10 real headlines and 10 fake headlines, we find it very difficult to tell them apart. You also point out that there is innate in humans. There's uh, probably your your wife who has her doctorate in psychology talks about our negative bias, and that's what we're more attracted to. We, we, We believe it faster than we do the other. Yes, without a doubt. So in in the book, we we talk about a couple of things. Firstly, that we as regular people carry as much responsibility in this fakeness era as do our political leaders, the media and businesses. And we unpack how it's because we have human glitches. We, We have sort of bugs in our own code, the way software has. And you're right, the negativity bias is a very important one. And it's it says this phenomenal research by Daniel Kamen, uh, a Nobel laureate, where he showed that people have a much stronger reaction when they lose $50 than when they're given $50. And, and you know, you could argue that this is what has driven the entire media ecosystem. Like, there's... there's no better news than bad news to drive up ratings and to capture the imagination of your readers. It's like, you know, if we go back to the early 1990s, what really put CNN on the map was the first Iraq war. It was a constant stream of bad, frightening, scary news for months on end. And that's what catapulted them to mainstream fame. So yes, negativity bias plays a very big role. And you also point out that there are studies that show that that negative news, let's say, passes faster in in the internet and on news, and it goes much faster and broader than the positive news. Do you have a comment on that? Yes. So so that's uh, based on a very different but a really fascinating study by uh, Deb Roy at MIT uh, done last year, where he and his uh, team and his uh, uh, co-authors of the study analyzed uh, 126,000 
headlines that were shared on Twitter over a 10-year period. You know, so these were the biggest news headlines that were shared on Twitter widely, widely, widely. And what he found is, firstly, yes, the fake news was shared to a, um, a multiple of seven much more and much more widely than the real news. So the Twitter platform invariably was weaponized to share an incredible amount of fake news. That's the first part to it. The second part, uh, which is also very interesting, is, you know, when we look at research like that or we think about the last couple of years, at least my immediate thought would be it's because of those bots <laughs> and it's because of who knows, maybe the Russians or someone else that all this fakeness is spreading. But the reality is that fake news was spread by all of us, by us regular people, because we would see a headline that would appeal to an emotion that would maybe have a negative uh, bent to it, that would be a, a dopamine trigger in our head. And before even reading the article or verifying whether it was authentic or not, we would click the retweet button. And that kept on happening. And, and that's where, in, in a weird way, we're complicit ourselves. That was a very interesting fact that you had in the book that surprised me. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Shiv Singh, and he, along with his wife, is are the authors of Savvy, Navigating Fake Companies, Fake Leaders, and Fake News in the Post-Trust Era. And if you want to know more about the work of Shiv, you can go to his website, SavvyMatters.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Shiv Singh, and he is the author with his wife, Rohini Luthra, of Savvy, Navigating Fake Companies, Fake Leaders, and Fake News in the Post-Trust Era. Shiv, when we're talking about the media and that we're talking about the negative news spreading really fast, and we're also culpable in that, that um, I'm thinking about the basic principle of any kind of media, whether it's newspapers, whether it's uh, television news, radio news, all of it, it's based on an economic principle that they're looking for more eyes, more ears, 
and so that they want to attract our attention. So their their whole bent is on the sensational in some ways because that is, as you mentioned, is what attracts our eye and our ear. Do you have a comment on that? Well, yes, but I I think that's not the the only purpose of news. I think you know people enter the journalism profession uh, very idealistically. You know, we we talk about it as uh, the 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 third leg of government. You know, the independent media. It plays an incredibly important uh, and valuable and honorable role in a democracy. And 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 I think it's you know one of the foundations for why America is such a special country today. Not every country has an independent media the way we have had it. Having said that, you're absolutely right. It's so tragic and so unfortunate that maybe the capitalism has gone a bit too far where the the desire to have more and more eyeballs, to have sticky audiences, um, has overtaken and and squashed those really honorable principles that have driven the media industry to date. And And I think something else has happened that's really unfortunate, which is News has become entertainment, and we digest news and absorb news the way we'd watch a Hollywood movie. And that's where everything breaks down. When the news becomes entertainment, it becomes less about the facts and more about a good story. And we see that, and unfortunately, it's across the entire political spectrum where the facts play their second place to the entertainment, to the eyeballs. Where it's gotten even more complicated is in the fact that the traditional revenue streams for the media ecosystem is tragically under stress. Our media, independent media, is withering away. And, you know, I'm a big believer in the internet. I grew up with it. I was an evangelist. I traveled the world promoting it. I wrote another book about it. But the economics of the internet don't allow for a strong independent media. And in fact, you know, the, the major tech companies here in the Valley and up in Seattle have taken a lot of advertising dollars out of the TV media. There's now more digital advertising spent than broadcast media. And then, of course, from print and uh, radio as well. So all of this creates this ecosystem where the media is not as independent anymore, partly because it just needs to survive, and to survive it needs to entertain, and then partly because we are falling prey for alternative facts and we want to be entertained, and we're not as focused on the things that makes our democracy as powerful as it has been. So, Shiv, <laughs> okay. I know there's with a lot all, there. With it, there's a lot there, and it and it's pretty pretty depressing in some ways. So, what can we do to mediate this situation and to find within that that swamp, let's say, a the the kind of news that's really beneficial that will really be of help and that. It's really truthful, as you say, in this post-truth era, that's really true. Yeah. So, Justin, before I answer that question, I'm going to uh, scare you just a little bit more, <laughs> just for a quick moment, <laughs> if right. you don't mind. Uh, what's also frightening is that this isn't just happening in the media 
the way information spreads, the way information has become candy, the way it's weaponized with technology is also happening in corporate America with the Fortune 500 companies, where it's become much harder to tell fact from fiction, where information has become entertainment to convince not just in honorable ways, but sometimes in malicious, nefarious ways as well. So it is a very big problem across uh, our, our country and different spheres. So that's the bad news. Let's move over to some sort of uh, more hopeful signs because we do end the book on a positive note. First and foremost, we all carry responsibility. It's a cop-out for us to blame our political or our business leaders or corporate America. We ourselves can step up and demand more. We are fortunately still a thriving democracy that works really effectively and we can uh, make our voices heard. Uh, and, and by voices heard, I mean calling out uh, on when we have more fiction than facts in the media, for example. The second thing that we can do is it is incredibly important for us to always pay attention to the other side. And, and I know it can be painful. It can be like taking some, some you know, bad tasting medicine. But, and, and this is a big belief of ours in, in the book, is that we don't know as much as we think we know. And that's the overconfidence bias. And we talk a lot about that in the book as well. The only way to overcome that is by engaging in conversations with people who disagree with, with our perspective. And the, the critical thing is to return to the time where we were able to disagree, but to do it with civility and a little bit of decorum. So you can still be friends, still have a relationship, but still disagree. Because if you don't know the other side, and you may be absolutely correct, but if you don't know the other side, you can't begin convincing the person. You end up demonizing them or they demonize you. And instead of bringing the country together, we we sort of fragment even further. So we have to understand and approach the other side. And in, in saying that, you have a part in your book, you call it the backfire effect. Yes. And that was like so great because you you state that this effect is the most insidious psychological phenomena. Talk about what that yes. backfire so, uh, effect so, is. So the backfire effect is is literally when uh, when you engage with opposing side, but it actually fails. So there's a it it doesn't always work. So there there are a few things there. So firstly. Uh, we want to engage with the opposing side, and we also want to be uh, we want to be evidence driven in everything we want to do, and we want to call out people who are not being fact based. We all have that responsibility. However, the backfire effect is insidious and strange because what happens in that scenario is when someone is saying something wrong, and you correct them. But instead of them being corrected, it makes them dig their heels in even more strongly. And there, there are a few classic examples of this. One of my favorites is uh, back in 2012, 2013, when President Donald Trump, he was just Donald Trump at the time, labeled uh, Barack Obama as a Muslim. Now, there's nothing wrong with being a Muslim by any means, but it just happened to be factually incorrect. Obama is not a Muslim. However, Every time Obama would say, no, no, wait a minute, I'm not a Muslim, 
I'm a Christian. I go to church. Nothing wrong with being a Muslim, but that's not me. Every time he would do that, Trump and his, and his supporters would believe that he was a Muslim even more. So the more he refuted it, uh, the more they would dig their heels in, the more they would assume it to be true. And that's why the backfire effect is confusing and insidious. It is when you correct someone, it has the opposite effect of what it should have. And one has to be conscious of that in any debate or argument because you could fall into that trap and then you could keep digging your heels in even right. more and it'll be like quicksand. I know our listeners who have listened to this program on a regular basis, they've heard a program that we did with Edwin Rutsch. And he does something called empathy circles. Mm. And he goes to political campaigns and conservative ones, liberal ones, mm. all of them. And he gets people, he uses a technology of, and when I say that, it's a way, a, a tech, not a technique, but a way of speaking to others that, that will avoid that backfire effect. And so some of our listeners have heard that program. Uh, that, And you mentioned it in your book that's very similar to that, to yes. that way of speaking to another without making them wrong, but really hearing their viewpoint first. So, so important. And, and I would argue, you know, these are things that our parents should have taught us if they didn't, or we should be learning in our schools and have two young kids. And we try to teach them and we hope they learn. It's really the art of conversation and the art of meaningful debate in a constructive form. Both Rohini and I believe strongly in this highly digitized era that we live in, where we're looking at our iPhones more than we're looking at each other. Um, and where we're influenced by our social media algorithms than we are influenced by the physical world around us. It is incredibly important that we relearn that art of conversation and relearn how to engage with opposing views, but in ways that don't make us all retreat to our filter bubbles and to our own echo chambers, but instead grow from interaction. And that's not easy. That's that takes some um, some effort on our part, and and it takes some time for us to put our own judgments and prejudices and biases aside, and really, really be genuinely curious yeah. about another point of view. But you know, there's I, I would say there's there's so much I have incredible amount of hope as well. And I say that because if we look at the history of America or the history of the world, I mean, just think about where we were in the 1850s, where the opposing point of view, you know, took us to civil war, where, you know, men and women, well, at that time, men alone weren't treated equally. On the 1920s, where uh, women, until then, women didn't even have suffrage, We've come a long way. So we, we have resilience and we grow and we change. Um, and now, you know, in this era of the Me Too movement, I think as society, we're, we're becoming, we're maturing so much more and we're becoming much more open to diverse and different points of views. So there's good news. We are living in a time where I don't think twice about getting into a car with a stranger to take me somewhere. It's called Uber. 
But if I think about it in the abstract, it can be frightening. I don't think twice about, you know, giving up my home for someone to stay in it. So there's a lot of positive as well, but we have to be mindful of the weaponized dark side to all of this too. I want to remind our listeners, I'm here with Shiv Singh. He spells his last name S-I-N-G-H, Shiv Singh. And along with his wife, Rohina Luthra, Dr. Rohini Luthra, they are the co-authors of Savvy, Navigating Fake Companies, Fake Leaders, and Fake News in the Post-Trust Era. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening. To new dimensions. I'm here with Shiv Singh, and he, along with his wife, Dr. Rohini Luthra, are the co-authors of Savvy, Navigating Fake Companies, Fake Leaders, and Fake News in the Post-Trust Era. Shiv, I'd like to ask you, one of the things that, that I have noticed ever since, really, Reagan administration is something called repetition. That if something is repeated enough, it becomes a kind of accepted truth. Do you have a comment on that? Yes, we, we talk about that a fair bit in the book, actually. And, and it's, uh, it's an incredibly powerful technique for convincing someone of something. Uh, and it's also uh, invariably what allows for lies to suddenly be perceived or considered to be the truth. It has a long history going back to Cato and and the Carthage Wars, the the Punic Wars. That's going Um, back to pre-Roman times. Yes, it does. And and I won't bore you with the entirety of that story, but it's actually a fascinating story, and we touch on it in a, a bit in our book. But the core point is that there's a lot of research, and we see the research manifested in real-life political and behavior of business leaders as well, which is quite simply the idea of a message is repeated again and again to the point that it becomes so familiar that we assume it to be correct. And when and the, the studies done show that you look at a series of messages, the ones that we're more familiar with, the more we trust them, the more we believe them. Now, the interesting thing about this is it doesn't actually just apply to messages. It also applies to who and where we place our trust. So, for example, if we're in a room of 100 people, um, and you know, when I talk about the book in, among large audiences, I say, look to your left and look to your right. And the person on your left or right who looks, physically looks, the most like you, guess what? you're going to trust that person so much more than the other. And that's because that's a familiarity, because we're used to seeing faces like that, and therefore we feel that they're safer. It goes back again to the beginning of time when, you know, we were in the caves and we were worried about lions and other animals, and anything that was foreign, we would 
know would be trying to attack us and kill us. So it's, you know, built in our DNA and we're wired that way. But it doesn't mean it's a good thing. Just because something's familiar, it does not mean that it's, one, true or accurate, or that we should give it a pass on whether we trust it or not. This gets, if I may say so, even more dramatic in the social media era where I'm looking at my Facebook news feed and I see this wonderful baby photo of my nephew one instant and the next instant I see a news story. Because I have just seen that wonderful photograph of my cute nephew, I'm more likely to automatically trust what that news story says on the social media platform. That's also how the familiarity effect plays. So you're saying, I mean, we have this bias, is what you're saying, towards being more accepting of what is familiar. Yes. We, we really, in fact, we, we look for that. And so you're asking us to bypass that tendency, which is so strong in us. Yeah. And, and it's really important to be aware of it. It's, it's, it's human nature. And, and when we talk about all these conversations, and there are a lot of them, both in the corporate world and the political world, about uh, diversity and inclusion, and those are very good and very important conversations, we don't acknowledge the biases that we have, that we have to overcome. We think that someone who's not automatically and innately inclusive is fundamentally and deeply flawed and should go to jail, etc. Ignoring the fact that everyone is on a journey because we're wired not to be diverse and not to be inclusive. And that's where we all have to change and we have to recognize these, these human glitches. That's what we call them in the book. So this is what we're calling expanding our awareness or expanding our consciousness, being moving, you said something earlier, moving from that kind of childhood of our species, so to speak, or the adolescence, some describe it as adolescence of mm -hmm. our species, to becoming more mature by understanding these built-in biases. Yes, without a doubt. And it only develops by uh, having exposure to people with different points of views, to studying and knowing what these biases are, these human glitches, uh, and then taking actions to suppress them. And that's why our entire book is titled Savvy, to be savvy in this era, to know these human glitches, to overcome them. And so you're, you're smarter in how you lead your professional and your personal life. And I know in the book, you each chapter, as you go through different parts of the book, you have what you call practical tips to get savvy. Yes. <laughs> and that was very helpful when you when you go through some of these tips after you give this information that is pretty devastating about even what, what we unwittingly are doing. Uh, just like the spreading of false or fake news that you say it's not the bots so much, it's us yeah. that we're doing it. We're, and so I want to ask you, are there places that we can check, that we can trust to check, uh, is this really fake news? Is this really true or not? Are there places that we can go? Yes, and we, we talk about them in our book. So fortunately, there are services and there are websites 
that help us determine what is fact, what is fiction. You know, websites like Snopes.com or uh, NewsGuard or PolitiFact that that help us. Now you feel that we can we can trust these. Why? Well, two reasons, and one, you know, eventually it's still in our hands. You know, like we we carry responsibility. But the first reason is they do a lot of in-depth analysis behind any major story out there to determine how truthful and honest it is. And then there are checks on them also that tell us how factual, what the accuracy level is. The second reason is that with these websites, they have a lot of other people inputting and providing um, opinions on how accurate that they're being. And it's all done in a way where they're not chasing eyeballs, similar, you know, different to how a major major media company may be. So, yes, they're the new truth gardens in many respects. So how do they support themselves? How do they keep in business? Yeah. So, so some of them are, are funded by private benefactors, but they do share who's funding them. But they're not chasing... So they're, tr- they're transparent about their funding yes, sources. Yeah, and then not in the business trying to get more and more eyeballs. So they don't feel obliged to be sensationalist. So that makes a very big difference. Uh, the other piece to this, which I think is so, so important, is we carry responsibility. We have to develop those skills. It's a certain kind of media literacy. And one of the things we talk about in our book is uh, inoculation theory, which is similar to just as we have vaccinations as children that then enable us not to get whatever the disease of the year is. We can inoculate ourselves from fake news. And you do it by being exposed to a little bit of fake news, learning how to identify the fakeness so that you keep building up your resistance. And going back also to repetition, uh, that's another way that we can notice when we keep hearing the same news over and over, even if it's news we agree with or it may not even be fake. It may be true, but just ad nauseum, they're just repeating the same cycle over and over and over to just sort of Hey, enough. Oh, totally. I mean, you know, in, in, in some respects, previous generations were better at this than we are. It would be called propaganda. They could sniff it a mile away and they'd be like, no, no, we're not a communist country. We're not going to fall for this. The bizarre thing is we're falling for it now uh, in a way we, we, we never used to. So I think that's massively important to look out for those repetitions and fight them. Something else I would say is it's really important to be able to zoom out and reflect on the entirety of a conversation so or a subject. So to Can give, you give us an example of that? Absolutely. So in the book, we talk about the horrible, horrific Parkland school tragedy. And, you know, you fast forward uh, to a year later, which is where we are today, And you then think back about what happened then, and you discover that there were actually two tragedies that took place, which in the moment, no one would have noticed or seen. The first was, of course, the horrible shooting and the victims and the scarring of a precious community. But the second tragedy is how the media covered it and how the left-wing media and the far left and the far right 
And each one developed their own narratives and each one did their own spin doctoring. And each political leader aligned to the left and aligned to the right did their own spin doctoring as well. And what all of this created, and, and the facts and the fictions were blurred together, but what it led to was that most of us in the middle, most of us Americans who are just, you know, getting on with life, we didn't know who to believe. And we were confused by these very messages. Polarized. The entire polarized conversation. But when we were confused by the polarization, guess what happened next? We switched off. We were like, we can't think about this. We there's too much noise. And that's human nature. The problem with it, and the reason why we talk about it as being a tragedy in the book, is when we switched off, there was no movement on gun control or on what I refer to as sensible gun control or checks and balances or solutions so that we wouldn't find ourselves in the same horrible place again. And when we look to a year later, we aren't doing... And I'm a parent. I have two children in in a public school. It pains me to say that I don't think we've done enough as a society in the, in the last year to protect our children. We have not learned from that horrible tragedy. And a big part of that is the separate media tragedy that took place where we in the middle, we just got numb to the conversation instead of being politically active. So that's the key is noticing when we're becoming numb to a very, very serious situation. Yes. And when we're being played by the media ecosystem, when each end becomes so powerful, it becomes toxic in bad ways that we switch off. And it's the hardest thing, but we cannot switch off. Too much is at stake. Um, And even if we look at the last 48 hours, that horrible tragedy in New Zealand, in Christchurch, what a Beautiful country. It's one of my favorite countries in the world. Um, But it happened. And those kinds of things will keep happening if we don't do more. I want to remind our listeners, I'm here with Shiv Singh. And he, along with his wife, Dr. Rohini Luthra, are the co-authors of Savvy, Navigating Fake Companies, fake leaders, and fake news in a post-trust era. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, SavvyMatters.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, NewDimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Shiv Singh, and he, along with his wife, Dr. Rohini 
Luthra are the co-authors of Savvy, Navigating Fake Companies, Fake Leaders, and Fake News in the Post-Trust Era. Shiv, you, you mentioned something earlier about just, let's say, a media event and one that just happened. We're taping this interview on the 15th of March, 2019, and we just heard about these terrible shootings in this precious part of the planet, New Zealand. And do you have any comment on that of how we can view this? Yes. Firstly, it couldn't be more shocking on one level. And yet then on another level, it's sadly not that surprising either. And I say that because we've spent, we, when I say we, all of us in society, we've spent the last several years, I would humbly suggest, not doing enough to shut down extremist, evil points of views in society. We've allowed the dog whistling to take place. We've allowed the mean, abusive messages to spread. And we've, in a way, without, by not shutting down, we've created an environment where such tragedies could take place. And to give you an example or to explain it a bit more, the part that I found really shocking about it is, so this is the... We might just mention in case someone, I doubt it, but in case someone missed it, that 49 people, I think, were, were killed and yes. many other injured in, in these shootings at two Mosque. Muslim mosques, yes, in, in, in New Zealand, in Christchurch, New Zealand. Yeah, in this lovely little town in Christchurch, which I, which I visited. Um, the part that made it's so, so shocking to me, and it's a horrible tragedy, is this terrorist who committed this, the two terrorists who committed these heinous acts, they planned it out so well, not just the terror act, but also the narrative, the way they announced it first via tweet, the way they had written an 84-page manifesto that they put online on 4chan and other online platforms, the way they had a GoPro camera that live-streamed the horrible tragedy second by second, live-streamed it onto Facebook, the way they um, used specific language and called out certain people and certain uh, uh, points of views around the world to make sure that it would get a lot of attention and their voice would be made a major would be a major voice in the debate. It it pains me to say this deeply, but it was as if they're the best marketers that the world has seen. And 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 you know, we have bad people in the world, they've always existed, but now they're turning into these incredible marketers as well, with the technology in their hands, and, and they do it to spread hate and to dog whistle and bring other people into their fold as well. Um, and, and that's why I say it's so frightening in this era of fake news, where it can get weaponized. Uh, the technology can get weaponized and used to such extreme ends. And so what can the individual do? What can I do to be of help? What step can I take to be of help to eradicate this? Yeah. So there are a few things. So firstly, I think 
all of us need to be much stronger political voices. I think it's an embarrassment in this time that only, you know, I think it's 50% of the population roughly that votes. We need all of us in the silent middle. Uh, we need to vote and make our voices heard so that our political leaders have more spine and you know, whether it's spot regulation around preventing the technology platforms being used in such bad ways, or it's holding the media uh, ecosystem more accountable for what is said, uh, uh, you know, by certain news anchors. There needs to be much greater accountability. That accountability will not, what we've seen is, unfortunately, will not come from the political classes on their own. It will only come if all of us you know, make our voices heard. So you're saying as an individual to rattle the can, to speak up, to to send an email to these news anchors or newspapers or do an editorial and and, in vote. New, and, and absolutely vote. Without a doubt. And and this is not a right or left issue. It's it's a it's a common sense issue. So that's one big part. The second thing is, as we talked about earlier, we all have to engage in conversations with people who may have different opinions. We're one world, we're one country. Um, the diversity is what makes us rich. It's, it's not the ghettos that make us a success. Diversity comes from engaging in different opinions and learning from each other. I think that's massively important. And I think that if we do, in my experience, if we do have those conversations, however difficult they are, that eventually, if they're handled in a, in a way of respect, mutual respect, yeah. and that, that we come to a bottom, bottom line or, or a basis, a foundation where we actually are wanting the same thing. Without a doubt, we, that's, when you have those conversations in the right way, that's where you, you invariably end up. Um, the, the other thing I would say is that it is extremely important for us to uh, get much more media literate, to know when we're being played, to make sure we're looking for diverse sources of information, to be calling out you know, stories that are not fact or evidence-driven, but instead are just entertainment or candy and, and make sure they're kept in that bucket so that we ourselves don't unintentionally become the enablers of the fictions and the fake news. One of the parts of the book that you devote some attention to is artificial intelligence. And you're really, you and, and your wife are, are both saying that we need to come up with some questions here. There's, there's something good here, but there's also some cautions. Can you speak to that, please? Yes, absolutely. So, so Justine, everything that we've talked about is at risk of being on steroids in an artificial intelligence world. And I say that because these AI systems, and they can produce immense benefits for humankind, so we're excited about that, but they can also have the same biases, the same human glitches that we talk about in our book in them. But with one exception, they're so much more powerful because these AI solutions, their processing power that's infinitely more richer than what our brains are capable of. So they become so powerful 
And if they have one little, you know, bug in them or by bias or glitch, it can cause a crazy amount of harm. I think you give an example of someone who got to work and suddenly he was fired. Yes. Do you remember that story? Absolutely. It's a it's a it's a great example. This was someone in the United Kingdom in I believe it was in Manchester who was doing his job really well. He showed up to work one day and he was locked out of his computer system. He couldn't enter the main door of his office building. And when he complained to his manager, his manager couldn't believe it because his manager had just given him a great great review. The manager couldn't do anything. Security came and said, we're going to have to escort you off campus. Uh, the manager complained to his manager, who complained to his manager. It went right up to the top. But there was something in the design of the systems in the company that had triggered an alert to say that he should not be working here anymore, which led him to being fired. And no human being could stop it. Now, think about that for a moment. That's one random example in one little town in the United Kingdom. Imagine when so much of our lives are automated, how that same example could happen again and again, but on huge scale. We're here in the Bay Area. We see a lot of these wonderful, fancy Teslas around. That's technology with awesome, amazing AI built into it. And these it. are like driverless cars. Driverless cars. Imagine if someone hijacks the code or the AI gets so powerful that it makes a mistake and drives us all off a cliff. Or or <laughs> you were saying that you were asking the question, what what about if that car hits a driver car? Yes. Who who's at fault and how there are all sorts of questions that you bring up in the book about this. Without a doubt. And and you know this is uh I am still a technology optimist um, and a technology uh, determinist, but I do believe we have to be more cautious and more thoughtful and, and put humans first and, and our own human selfish interest maybe a bit more strongly as we embrace these new technologies. Because the same issues that we see with fake news and fake leaders and with the human glitches, we're going to see around artificial intelligence, but because of that processing power, it could cause so much more damage before we figure out how to stop it or even notice what's going on. So, boy, we've covered a lot of ground today. <laughs> thank you. I want to thank you so much for being with us and, and helping us through this windy path of media and fake news and trust and everything. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much for having me on. It's been my pleasure. And I have been speaking with Shiv Singh. He spells his last name S-I-N-G-H. And he, along with his wife, Dr. Rohini Luthra, are the co-authors of Savvy, Navigating Fake Companies, Fake Leaders, and Fake News in the Post-Trust Era. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, SavvyMatters.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, NewDimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3671. 
New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. This program was recorded at Strawberry Hill Productions, a full-service podcast production studio in Novato, California. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions, as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions, whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org, or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.